to the Man Talks podcast. I am Connor Beaton, the host and founder of Man Talks. This podcast brings together the best thought leaders, teachers, and extraordinary individuals to teach and mentor you on how to be a top performer in life, love, and business. Imagine having experienced mentors with decades of wisdom delivered right to your ears. We talk about purpose, happiness, legacy, influence, love, success, sex, and so much more. Don't forget to leave us a review Subscribe and join the thousands of other changemakers in our community on Facebook or go to www.mantalks.com. Today, I have the fortune and opportunity to talk about happiness, how to cultivate it, what stops us, what blocks us, uh, with a very, very special guest named Neil Pastricha. Now, Neil is... I've been following Neil's work for a little while, and so today is a, a little bit of a special opportunity. And in this podcast, we dig into a, f- a couple of different things. One, we talk about his personal life. Two, we go into his new book called The Happiness Equation, which is a fantastic book. And, and The Happiness Equation is this. It's, it's want nothing plus do anything equals have anything. So Neil is a New York Times bestselling author, and this, this book is actually on the New York Times bestselling list. The Book of Awesome is his recent earlier book, his first book. That sold over a million copies, and it was a New York Times bestselling book as well, which is pretty incredible. Neil also serves as the director of the Institute for Global Happiness after a decade running leadership development inside Walmart. He is one of the world's leading authorities on happiness and positivity. Neil's TED Talk, The Three A's of Awesome, has been viewed over two and a half million times and has led to him speaking about happiness around the globe. So I am excited. I am excited and I'm very, very grateful. This episode is jam-packed with tips and tools and insights and quotes. What I would recommend is a pen and paper or something that you can take notes down on because you're going to want to. Even I found myself sitting here trying to frantically write down notes and insights as Neil was talking. So it's, it's, it's a really, really great episode about cultivating happiness and fulfillment. And so I hope you enjoy. And so without further ado, I would like to welcome Neil Pasricha. All right, Neil. So I am so freaking excited to have you on the podcast. Thanks for being here. Oh, thanks so much for having me. Of course, my friend. So to kick things off, you know, one of our favorite questions to ask our guests is, can you share with us a defining moment or story about your life and how it shaped you? Yeah, sure. You know, I think for me, I had a pretty cushy childhood. I, uh, my parents were immigrants, mom from Nairobi, dad from uh, Amritsar, India. So it wasn't easy for them, but they gave us a really easy life. And my defining moments, probably my late 20s, when in the span of a few weeks, I lost both my marriage and my best friend who had mental illness and, and very sadly took his own life. And those two things happened so close together and were so striking because they were my first real kind of experiences with, with real despair. It's times like that you find out who you are. And, and you know, my inclination around that was to write about positivity uh, on, on a blog uh, called A Thousand Awesome Things. And so I think for me, that would be my, my most sort of memorable or formative experience um, going through those hardships and slowly, emphasis on slow, but but rebounding from them. 
Mm, that's powerful. And so out of that space is every kind of everything that you've created. Is that how it shaped you? Yeah, exactly. I, I, um, yeah. So I started, I started a blog called 1000awesomethings.com. I wrote one awesome thing a day for a thousand straight days. Things like finding five bucks in your coat pocket, things like popping bubble wrap or pressing those weird little plastic buttons on the like McDonald's soft drink cup lid. You know, like, why do you press those? I don't know why I always press. I used to think that someone, in, you know, in the garbage kind of dumpster area was like doing a survey on like what people drank or something. And uh, I just read little essays about them. They were pithy. They were simple. They made me laugh. And most importantly, they took away the pain I'd been feeling all day in a just sort of a brief moment before I went to bed. And that daily practice we now know from research by Emmons and McCullough that, you know, writing down five gratitudes a week even, but, you know, that's kind of what I was doing, um, has a disproportionately huge impact on your own positive mindset. Um, they compared it in the study to people with uh, who had been writing down five hassles or five events over a 10-week period. And those who wrote down five gratitudes were, were much happier. And so that's kind of what I was doing. Um, and there's another study that shows that journaling has a huge effect on your happiness too. And it's kind of like, that's kind of what I was doing. And I didn't mean to do to do those things. It was more just that's what I turned to. Hmm. Yeah, that's fantastic. I mean, it's, I mean, it's unfortunate that those circumstances happen, which is, um, you know, never, never a good thing in our lives, but it's incredible how you rebounded from it and took action. And I think one of the incredible things is that it's led to these, you know, amazing pieces like writing the book of awesome and then, you know, giving the, giving the talk, the three A's of awesomeness at, at Ted talks. Uh, and so what was that like? What was like, what was giving a Ted talk like? Cause you're, I you're, should be asking you that yeah. question. <laughs> Your talk has been seen like two and a half million times, man. It's crazy. It's so yeah. good. I mean, I, uh, I mean, it was, it was, I, I was in, look, I was in a pretty unhealthy period. I, I, yes, the book of awesome, um, the Ted talk, uh, the, the, the blog, these things are like, you know, Phoenix from the ashes kind of thing. But I, at the same time, like if I look at myself really clearly at, at that point in my life, we're talking late two thousands, early 2010s, you know, I, I was, I'd lost 40 pounds through stress. I, I wasn't sleeping. I, I was working a full-time job at Walmart by day, writing the blog at night, writing the books on top of that. Um, saying no to every invitation I got because I was always writing, processing a divorce, selling a house in a, in a kind of a terrible time to be selling a house, processing the loss of a friend. And, you know, I guess they say, you know, you maybe your highest art artistic periods come when you're the unhappiest. But like, what was the TED talk like? It's all a blur. I, I, I was nervous. I, I remember feeling stress, of course, kind of chronically. I remember practicing it in my, in my, you know, tiny condo bachelor apartment, like over and over again, not being able to sleep before it. And then of course, the guy who spoke just before me at the conference happened to get, he was like a, like a, like a national geographic researcher who like spent his life like peering into volcanoes and things. And it was like an astoundingly good talk. And he got like a standing O and as the standing O was like still going, they're like, you're on. You know what I mean? It's like I'm walking out to someone else's standing O. It's, it's the worst kind of feeling. You're like, oh, and now we got to start from dead silence again, you know? And so, um, yeah, I remember feeling just crazy amounts of stress about it. And Tim Urban, who I know has been a guest on this great podcast, mm -hmm. has a fantastic article about what it's like to give a TED Talk. And I, I read that. And my experience was 
everyone's experience is different. And he had spoken at the main stage of Vancouver. But I, I remember reading that and being like, oh my gosh, so much of this rings true to me, as I'm sure it does for any of your listeners who have had to just give a speech at a wedding or at, on a TED, TEDx stage or uh, wherever, Davos, you know, yeah. <laughs> but just like it, it gets, it gets inside your brain. You get real nervous about it. Yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, I, he, I, I must've practiced my talk like 250 times. It was, it was crazy how many times I had run through it. Um, but I mean, I just want to thank you because I think for a lot of people, you know, you've, you've created something spectacular with, with your books and, you know, with your online presence and with everything that you've done leading up to this point. And it's nice and it's refreshing for people to know that not only did it come out of a darker space, but it's it's something that you built off the side of your desk, you know, and this is something that Chris Gillibo talks about a lot. And, you know, I built Man Talks while working at Apple. And I built it off the side of my desk as well. Not literally, because, you know, <laughs> that probably wouldn't have been very good if I was yeah. doing Mantox work at, at Apple. Um, but I think for some people, they think that they, that they need to leap and the net will appear, but they haven't built anything out in the world. And so before we move on and, and really dig into happiness, what would you say for the, for the listeners that are out there that are trying to build their sort of passion project on the side or they're trying to build a business on the side? What's like the one piece of advice that you would give them? Definitely don't quit your day job. You, you kind of said it for me. And, and look, I started a thousand awesome things in 2008. The book of awesome, you know, together with it's sold a million copies, got a six figure advance. Like the whole thing that was spiked in 2010 and subsequent sequels, et cetera, with 2011 and onwards. I just quit Walmart. 12 weeks ago, like in 2016, eight years, I, I did both. And for me, it was because, you know, East Indian immigrant parents preaching to be a doctor were in the back of my head, you know, like you got to have a steady paycheck. But, and I, and I, of course, failed at the, that, the, the doctor thing. But, but you know what else was in the back of my head is that I was not a confident person. Okay. Just to be blunt, I was not a confident person. By having a side project, side hustle, side of your desk, whatever you call it, um, that gave me more confidence at work. So I became a little bit more blunt in meetings. I became a little bit like, you know, speaking truth to power, right? You put your hand up when the CEO says any questions, when no one else puts their hand up. And when that happens at work, guess what? You get promoted. Um, in fact, they give you more money and more responsibility, and more direct reports. They, they want you to do well because you're speaking truth to them. And the stability of that day job afforded me the ability to never put ads on my website. I never needed to monetize it. Um, I was able to do the Jeff Bezos thing and like play the long game. You know, I don't know if that guy's like rich kind of coming in or not, but like this was like I could play the long game. It was I didn't need to worry about setting up Google AdWords or how to even do that. It was just write one awesome thing a night. And um, in my writing, I think, at least for me, I became more confident, a little bit more risky, a little bit more speaking truth because I never needed it. And so both those things acted like a yin-yang where one gave me the confidence in the other. And even now, I'll, I'll be honest with you, I just quit Walmart this year, 2016. And uh, yeah, I feel a bit of the Oh, I don't have a study. You know, I still, I don't have the paycheck coming in, and and don't get me wrong, I'm I'm okay, and, and you know the happiness equation just came out, and I'm really happy with this book, and I'm excited to spend more time writing and doing things like that. But it's also like, yeah, you want the one piece of advice? 
that side project is important to keep on the side as I think as long as possible. Mm. Yeah, that's really great advice. And I, I had the exact same experience. Like I just left Apple uh, six months ago. So I'm in, I'm in the same boat as the lurch. As, yeah, exactly. I, exactly. And, and it's such a odd experience to leave, you know, like that big, well-paying corporate job and, and, and be in a space of, you know, having built up our own way so that you feel comfortable within your business and what you're doing. And, and, uh, you know, I think for a lot of listeners, it's, it's just nice to hear that from somebody that's, you know, been through it. And, and I mean, you know, seven or eight years of, of really, putting in hard work and, uh, and having it all pay off. So that's fantastic. Thank you very much. Uh, so with that in mind, let's, let's talk about happiness, man. That's why, that's why you're here. We want to talk about happiness. We want to get down, get happy. And, uh, you know, everybody wants happiness. Everybody wants, everybody wants the secrets to happiness. They want to, they want to know what they should do. And so we're going to talk about your new book, the happiness equation, want nothing plus do anything equals have anything. I love that. So let's just, let's just dive in. Like what, What's your, what are your, I mean, you, you know, your, your book is based off the, the nine secrets of happiness. So let's, let's just talk about some of those. What's, what's your favorite secret? Let's start well, there. Yeah. Well, you know, here, here's the funny thing about happiness is, um, and I'm going to tell you my favorite secret is that like, what a weird term, you know, it's super nebulous. Like, what does it mean? There's no DNA test or blood test for it. In fact, all the studies actually just ask you how you're doing at the beginning and ask you how you're doing at the end. It's called subjective well-being, you know? We don't even know what it is. In fact, if you type in how to be into Google, like just those three words, how to be, the first dropdown is happy. Okay. And number two, three, and four are rich, pretty, and real estate agent. So we know we want happiness more than anything else, you know, because Google's proven that they don't, they don't bias their algorithm, blah, blah, blah. And, um, I'm, I'm making the, the Hillary Clinton joke there. And, and, we also know that if you go to Amazon and type in happiness, there's 75,000 books like in the book category alone on happiness. So, so we want it really badly, but we can't get it? Yeah, we can't get it. Uh, Professor David Myers at University of Michigan has done the largest longitudinal study since 1955 asking the same group of people how happy they are. It's been 20% since 1955, people that, percent of people that say they're very happy. So in, let me get – so just to be clear, like income is spiked, safety is spiked, mobility is spiked, everything is spiked, uh, access to information, technology, travel, but but happiness has stayed flat. So we want it more than anything else. We want it more now than we ever have before and yet we can't seem to find it. And so so that all cues into what you asked me. When Leslie – I got remarried, and so that's a whole other story I could share with you if you want, but I got remarried when my wife Leslie told me she was pregnant on the plane home from our honeymoon. <laughs> like she did the price on the airplane because <laughs> um, uh, there was a layover. She wasn't feeling well. Then I said to her, you know, what do we want for our, ch- our future child? And of course, it's what every parent wants. Like we want our kid to be happy. And I said to her, you know what? I had this crazy experience with the Book of Awesome, giving the TED Talk, speaking around the world, talking to best-selling authors, and guess what? They're no happier than you or me. Like, how are we supposed to? How are we possibly supposed to give our children that if we don't really know where it is? And so, what started for me then, uh, Connor, was uh, uh, the writing of a three hundred page, essentially love letter to my unborn child on how to live a happy life, and that letter is the happiness equation. So the book is that letter. In fact, even still today, if you look at the copyright page in 2.5 at the bottom, it says, to my baby, I want you to have this in case I didn't have a chance to tell you, love dad. 
And so the secret I, I, I resonate the most with is, is that actually my parents' advice as, as a child was totally backwards. They told me that if you do great work, you have a big success and you're happy. Like if you study hard, you get good grades, then you're happy. Or if you work really hard, you'll get promoted and then you're happy. Unfortunately, that's totally backwards. All the positive psychology research, especially spearheaded by Sonia Lubomirsky uh, at Stanford University of California, says it's totally, totally wrong. In fact, it's the opposite. If you be happy first, then you do great work and then you have a big success. Front of Harvard Business Review last year said, if you're happy at the beginning, you're 31% more productive, you have 37% higher sales, and you're three times more creative than your peers. So it's the opposite of how we think about it. Most parents tell their kids to do work, then, then get success and be happy. It's the opposite. We should be teaching our children how to be happy at the beginning, how to be happy by investing in meditation, gratitude practices, journaling practices, physical exercise, random acts of kindness, things we now know that work for happiness, those are what we should cultivate, not the hard work at the beginning. So it's almost like flipping the game around, right? Like the game, the game before, you know, like for our parents, at least the game was get a bunch of money, be financially secure, be financially successful. And then happiness comes on the other side of that. And so what you're saying is kind of like the game is the opposite way around is that, you know, you can find that fulfillment in any circumstance. You can find that happiness in any circumstance through these practices and in with these tools and those things will come, and when when they do come, you can enjoy them at a deeper level. Absolutely, you you couldn't have said it better. Every single positive outcome we know how to test for goes up if you're happy at the beginning. So, yeah, you are not only likely to do better work, be more productive doing it, and be more creative. You're also, uh, as some of our peers have in this industry kind of kind of shaped, is that you're forty percent more likely to get promoted. And there's an incredibly famous study from University of Kentucky called the Nun Study, which maybe we can link to afterwards. And it shows that you're, you, you live on average 10 years longer mm-hmm. if you're happy. They, they did this study on the autobiography of nuns entering U.S. convents in the 1930s and 40s, splitting them into piles based on the language they used. So, you know, I went to Notre Dame in 1909. That's a normal nun. I'm looking forward to joining the mother house because I've had a blessed life. That's a happy nun. And the happy nuns, like I said, live 10 years longer. And by the way, nuns are the perfect people to study because they are the same gender, wear the same clothes, eat the same food. None of them smoke or drink or have sex ever. Yeah. Yeah. So, it's, like the, it's like the perfect non-biased uh, populace. It's, it's very yeah. true. Last time I said that in front of an audience, by the way, a woman in the front row said, not the nuns I know. So uh, <laughs> I guess there are some dirty nuns around. Yeah. I wonder what nuns she's hanging out with. That's a separate with. podcast. Yeah. <laughs> Oh my goodness. All right. So let, let's jump in. Let's jump into some of these secrets. Cause I mean, your, your book is jam packed full of some, some great tidbits, some great quotes, some, some really great tools. And so, you know, for the listeners out there, I really want them to be able to, to take away some of these tools of, of, you know, how do they cultivate more happiness? Cause I think it's something really important. And, you know, for me, like I, just to touch on what, you know, you have gone through in your experience, I think it really resonates with me and I think it'll really resonate with a lot of people. And I think back into my past and when I went through a really depressive time where, you know, I'd gone through a breakup and uh, I, w- I lived out of the backseat of my car for a few weeks. And when I started to come out of that, one of the things that really pulled me out was a daily practice of gra- of gratitude journaling. And I started that because of this book, the, uh, what was it called? Um, the artist's way. 
the mm. artist's way. And I don't, I don't know if you've ever heard of that, but one of yeah, the things yeah, that she yeah. talks about is writing, just writing three pages a day. And so I just started like writing and, and it, you know, at first it was ridiculous and it felt ridiculous and, you know, and then it kind of like gradually got better and better and better. And then, you know, I pulled myself out of like this really dark space. And so is that, is that kind of like the, the sort of like curvature that you experience with writing, uh, you know, a thousand awesome things or like writing an awesome thing every day? Was it like this pulling you out of this space? It was, and it helps you, you know, it's like staring at the sun and then, you, you know, you look away, you can still see the sun. Mm. By the way, I don't recommend staring at the sun, <laughs> small point font at the bottom. But, you know, it's like when you start looking for positive things, when you start focusing on positive things, you, you, you with your three crappy pages a day, you know, Tim Ferriss has that famous mantra of like, his goal is two crappy pages of writing a day because it's attainable. And once you get going, it's hard to stop. And so, yeah, I encapsulate the, the gratitude practice, the journaling practice as part of secret number one, which is being happy first. But the other eight secrets of the book are all other things I learned about happiness. And a really big one for me is actually this concept of retirement that we have in the Western world. And if I could just go on a, sort of a mini rant right now, I will say, rant. Uh, uh, okay, rant, here's the rant, never retire. Okay, that that is a huge secret to happiness. Never retire. Eliminate that concept from your mind completely because the truth of the matter is that paradigm is new. It was invented in Germany in 1889 when Chancellor Otto von Bismarck just declared age 65 is the retirement year. Uh, surprise, surprise, uh, lifespan was 67. You know, like it was like the right, right near when people die and youth unemployment, by the way, also was 20%. So we want to just like pay people that might be a little bit sick who want to to kind of leave the workforce till they die for a year. It was like that, but we attached ourselves to the 65 number. We all live way longer and we all, you know, dream of kind of what 50 years of playing golf. Um, no, it, it's a backwards concept. In fact, the healthiest societies in the world, like those of Okinawa, Japan, studied by Dan Butner and, and this National Geographic team, they live seven years longer. Than we do seven. That's a lot of extra years, you know, in Okinawa. And they have no word for retirement, like literally nothing in their language describes the concept of stopping work completely. Instead, they have a word called ikigai, which is spelled I-K-I-G-A-I, ikigai. It roughly means the reason you get out of bed in the morning. You don't need to retire. You just need to have a reason to get out of bed in the morning. And so, um, you know, this morning I had uh, a breakfast meeting with Joy Fielding. She's 71. She sold 20 million books. Um, she writes a book a year. She still does. It's a practice for her. And you know what? I don't think she'll ever stop. And I love that because I love that because you know what? Uh, that's a huge huge leading indicator on your happiness level. Um, Fortune magazine shows that the two most dangerous years of your life are the year you are born and the year you retire. Okay. And the New York times had a study come out recently that showed your instances, your instances of depression spike 40% uh, in the year you retire. Retirement is dangerous. It doesn't lead to happiness. It leads to loss of purpose and idleness uh, leads to kind of, you know, uh, atrophy. And, and so a huge secret of the book is secret number four, which I open with telling the story of my beloved high school guidance counselor who was, was forced to retire and then died the next week. And I tell the story partly because everyone knows somebody who retired and they're like, they went kaput. So a big thing is you can, you can slow down. 
you can volunteer at the hospital. You can, you know, run the front desk at the library. I'm not saying that's a slow job, but I'm just saying you can slow it down, but don't stop doing. Mm. Mm. So it's not a, it's not about just like doing nothing, right? Like I, I think for a lot of people, they, they think that they need to like put all this money aside so that they can escape from their jobs. So it's about shifting that perspective. So you're not escaping from something, but that you're creating a life that you would just want to carry on until the end. Absolutely. And, and the, there's four specific variables you need in a good job. They are, I call the four S's. They are social, structure, stimulation, and story. Social is having friends, uh, people that you like spending time with, right? You and, you and Frank, me and, you know, whoever and, uh, and Roger and whatever. And, and, you know, you have these like, you look forward to going out for lunch with them, right? You carpool with them. Second one is structure. We all have 168 hours in a week. You, me, Obama, Zuckerberg, right? <laughs> and so uh, you split that into three. You got 56 hours to sleep. You got 56 hours to work. And then that earns you a third whatever you want bucket, okay? Maybe it's raising kids for 20 years. Maybe it's going to the gym. Maybe it's writing awesome things for a thousand straight days. Whatever it is, that's what you get. And so uh, the structure is really important to have in your life, the kind of the, the alarm clock kind of goal, reason to set your alarm and have a nice shirt and so on. Uh, stimulation is always learning, always, always be learning and challenging yourself with something new. And story is, um, being part of something bigger than yourself. So you were at Apple, you know, um, uh, thinking differently. Uh, if you're at Google, you're organizing the world's information. If you're at Wikipedia, you're giving the sum of human knowledge to the world for free. You have something you couldn't do by yourself. That's the story you're part of. And so if you have those four S's, social structure, stimulation, story, Notice that one of them, by the way, isn't salary. If you have those four S's, you're fine. That actually will give you a, a purpose and, and a, a huge, it's a huge indicator for your happiness. Nice. That's fantastic. Um, I, I think you touch on this in, in the book and it's one of the questions that I really was wanting and like excited to, to ask you, but what is one of the biggest misconceptions about happiness? Uh, there's a lot. <laughs> uh, uh, I mean, uh, money does not lead to happiness. That's a big one. Success does not lead to happiness. That, that's a big one. Um, and you know, I think people just think that like, you know, the, the sort of more you have or the more you've achieved, uh, uh, you know, that will get you happier. The truth of the matter, I think in terms of success is I think that there's a triangle. I actually draw this out in the book. I call it the success triangle and there's three points on a triangle, right? So one of them is called sales. One of them's called social and one of them's called self. Sales success means you're a commercial hit. Um, dump trucks beat while backing into your garage to drop off royalty payments. Like if you're, if you're at Apple, then you ship a million iPods. If you're at, uh, you know, a marketing company, like your, your things just flying off the shelves, right? Whatever it is, you, you got the sales component. The other one is social. You're critically beloved. You are, if you're a, an author, reviewed in the New York Times, right? You are nominated for the Man Booker Prize, whatever it is. And then there's self, which is like, how do you feel about it? Are you happy with it? And the reason I draw it on a triangle is because it's like an old wobbly board at like one of those old gyms where you can't have all three at once. In fact, they contradict each other. You know, spotlight one best picture. You can have no higher social praise in the movie industry than best picture of the Academy Awards, but a box, the box office was $19 million, right? Whereas Hotel Transylvania 2, which was not nominated for any Oscars, had $300 million, uh, had the sales success. Social and sales often contradict, and self sometimes contradicts. Like, 
for myself, I want to build a deck or bake a cake or plan a lesson, but they have no sales or social strategy. Like, like you can't get everything. So if you can't get everything, aim for one and, and know which one that is. And, and this, by the way, Connor, stemmed from a question I used to often get, which is like, how do you be successful as an author? You sold a million copies of your book, whatever. And I'm like, well, what do you want to write? They're like, my grandma's memoir. <laughs> and I'm like, well, that's, that's probably not going to sell. I know. No problem. I just want to do it for myself. Oh, oh, okay. That's a different kind of success. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and that's where this, this triangle came from. It's like realizing like you do some things just for yourself. You do some things maybe just for the sales. Yeah, you do some things maybe just for the social, but pick which one you want. Hmm. Yeah, that's that's really good. And and so just kind of like switching gears here, because I think one of the biggest things you, you touched on criticism before. And and uh, I think this self-sabotage is one of the biggest things that a lot of people face is that they they make some progress. They're, they're starting to feel a little bit happier. They're starting to feel like they're moving their their life or their happiness, or their purpose or whatever it is in the right direction. And then, you know, self-doubt and criticism comes in. So what are some pieces that that you can, you know, sort of dish out for people to deal and combat with with criticism? Because that's from what I from what I know, secret number two might have something to do with this. Yes. Secret number two. Uh, criticism is huge. I, and by the way, like this came from my own personal experience. I got obsessed with you know, over time, the extrinsic motivators uh, in life. And there are extrinsic motivators in all parts of life. Like your Twitter followers are on display. Your uh, bestseller list ranking is on Amazon, updating every hour. Your podcast downloads, you know, like we all have extrinsic motivators. They surround us. Um, yet it's our intrinsic motivators, the reason inside ourselves that we do something in the first place. Like the reason that attracted you to the company or the reason you started your blog or your podcast. And so uh, study after study actually shows that extrinsic motivators actually block intrinsic motivators in our brain. It's a really weird phenomenon, but once we're rewarded for something, we no longer see the reason we were doing it in the first place. It's like Peter Drucker's old quote, um, what gets measured gets managed, Right. So they did the study. I'll give you one example of a study, and there's several where you know they asked girls uh, to teach piano to younger girls. One group was offered the joy of teaching, you know, and and the thrill of seeing someone learn piano. The other group was was offered if they did it for 30 minutes, they were offered a free ticket to the movies. Well, well, guess what? The girls who were offered the tickets to the movies were. Uh, you know, frustrated more easily. They scolded the girls more quickly. They bailed after 30 minutes because they got their movie ticket and they were much worse teachers, you know? And that's the point is that when we are measured on something, we typically do worse because we no longer feel the intrinsic reason. So uh, how do you deflect criticism? You do it for you, do it for you and figure out ways to either extricate extrinsic motivators from your lives, don't pay attention to them or get rid of them altogether. And ask yourself a really crucial question, which is, would I do this for free? That's the key question. It doesn't matter if you're getting paid, but just ask yourself, would I do this for free? If the answer is no, then that means you're doing it for something else. And, and explore what that means, and, and then you'll, you sometimes uncover a lack of an intrinsic motivator, and that tells you you're on, you're on the wrong track. You're doing it for the wrong reasons. It's hard to do it for yourself that way. 
Yeah, I think that's that's really fantastic. And I think some of the most successful people that I've ever seen in their in, in their business, whether it's a creative business, like a photography or music or or even just like selling products or writing, whatever that whatever the case may be, so many people started off just because they loved it, just because they had a passion for it. Like you think of, you know, Apple, Steve Jobs, Steve yeah. Wozniak sitting out of the garage, like, you know, the the initial the initial passion was there and they did it because they loved it. They didn't do it because they, you know, they wanted to be billionaires and they wanted to have the biggest, most successful company in the world. It started because they saw an opportunity and they were passionate about something. And then they started taking action towards it much like you with the, uh, you know, the thousand awesome things. So, you know, I think that's a, that's a huge, that's a huge point. And one of my colleagues, one of my friends, very successful corporate job, he started doing photography about two years ago and just, started doing it. He loved it. And it's turned into like this massive thing for him now over the course of two years. So I think that's a, that's a fantastic question. Um, secret number six, do you mind if we jump around at all? Is that okay? No, I love it. I love it. All right. So secret number six, the secret to never being too busy again. This is something that I feel like a lot of people struggle with is being busy. Uh, I've, I call it, I call it wearing the busy badge. I, you know, I, I'll have to like call myself out like, okay, I'm wearing the busy badge right now and I'm, I'm putting up this front or I'm, I'm disconnecting with people because I'm saying that I'm too busy. What is the secret to not being too busy again? Help me, tell me, tell us, <laughs> tell all of us, please. Okay. First of all, I'm going to skip all the preamble where I agree with you completely and talk about <laughs> how many texts we all get and how much time we check our phone every day. And like, it's just exhausting, but I will tell you summary in summary, busyness gets in the way of happiness. Okay. That's a quick summary. It's, I explore that a little bit more in the book. Now, how do, how do I stop being so busy again? Three things. You must eliminate choice, eliminate time and eliminate access. Think of them as the three Cape Crusaders, like with long, sharp kind of not, you know, knives, like you, you got to cut away at those three things, choice, time, and access. Choice is the first one. We all have decision fatigue. You make 295 decisions a day on average. Which way am I going to go to work? What am I going to have for lunch? What am I going to do? Cardio or weights? Which cardio machine? Am I going to do hill or normal or manual or whatever? What am I going to watch on the TV on the cardio, you know, on the cardio machine? It's exhausting. So you have to automate a, a vast, the vast majority of things. Like I follow ways to and from work, right? Like I don't know how – it tends me down dark alleys, fine, but I make less decisions. Uh, we do double dinners, Leslie and I. Like we automate lunch. It, there's no more little voting buttons or in the office where someone's like, do you want to go to like eat at you know, Chili's? Uh, forget it. It's double dinners and we automate lunch. You have to take choice out of the equation. For those who are listening who, who uh, may travel to Toronto, there's a really famous restaurant here called Ruby Watch Co., uh, started by celebrity chef Lynn Crawford, who's from like the Four Seasons in Manhattan. And guess what? There's no menu. <laughs> like, like you walk in, everyone eats the same thing. There is no choice. And it's like top 10 in Toronto, top 10 you know, of thousands of restaurants on TripAdvisor. Why? People love the idea of not having to make decisions. The ironic thing is, Connor, is that like – Daniel Goldman's work, uh, sorry, Daniel Gilbert's work at Harvard has shown that people, unfortunately, choose the option that includes the most options in it. Like we want the shoe store with the most shoes for sale, or we want the movie theater with the most movies playing. Those things are detrimental to our happiness. You actually want the movie theater with one movie playing because then you'll be happy with it. It's all you got. 
you know, you enjoyed the popcorn and like whoever you're putting your arm around, right? Like that's what matters to you now, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. So first thing is eliminate choice in your life. First thing. Second thing is eliminate time. Parkinson's law. Uh, there's a guy by the name of General Northcote Parkinson. No one had heard of this guy, by the way, until he published an article in 1955 in The Economist called Parkinson's Law. And the first sentence of that article said, it is a commonplace assumption that work will rise to fill the time available for its completion. You know, like if the deadline's next Friday at midnight for your essay, you hand it at 11.50, right? Like work rises to fill the time available for its completion. Um, I've heard women say the contents of your purse expand to fill your purse, you know? Like <laughs> you see a woman with like huge purses. They ain't empty, you know? Like, I don't know. They got, they got them filled. Um, work expands to fill the time available for its completion. So therefore, how to be less busy? You eliminate time. And I, I give a case profile in the happiness equation about a tech exec who actually takes his entire team offsite for full day secret meetings and says, Hey, you know that six month project that we all had to do together? Like this website that we're going to start in like two quarters from now? We're just going to do it today. And no one's going to go home till we're done. But everyone's here. The coders, the, uh, designers, the, the copy editors, everyone's here. There's no meetings. There's no emails. There's no out of office. We're just going to sit in a room till we do it. And, he takes – he cuts time out of the equation and as a, as a result creates time after it's done. He takes a six – imagine taking a six-month project off 60 people's plate in one day and that's what he does. It's amazing. Uh, so the th- second thing to eliminate is time. Move your deadlines earlier so you make space afterwards. And, and the adage I give you is, yes, only nerds do their homework on Friday night, but they're the only ones that have the weekend to party. Okay? <laughs> um, I love that. I love that. <laughs> and the third, the third thing to eliminate, remember, we've already eliminated choice. We've eliminated time. The third thing to eliminate is access. Okay. I was sitting at my desk at Walmart where I worked for 10 years, and I counted up the number of access points people had to me. They had texting. They had the office communicator, instant messenger program. They had email. They had my voicemail. They could walk up to my desk, you know, they could, you know, there's just like a, a slew of them. The average person has six access points and a uh, famous study shows that whenever you transfer between access points, like your brain has to do three things. You have to bookmark, prioritize and switch, which is a very complex task. You have to decide, is this email coming in more or less important than my ringing phone or the person standing at my desk, right? And uh, one CEO I worked for, I noticed had no access points to himself. Like he had no social media accounts. He had no personal cell phone. He did not uh, have like, you know, like people wouldn't walk into his office because he was a CEO. But the point is like there was just no access points to him. So he therefore only had one, which was email. He had an email account, but he wouldn't really write any emails. So he never got any either. He, he eliminated the access points. His brain never bookmarked, prioritized, and switched. And he didn't do what McKinsey says most people do, which is spend 28% of our time a day on email. So what access points can you eliminate? At work, at Walmart, here's what I did. Here's what I recommend. First of all, take off all notifications off your email so you never see anything pop up. Second of all, I set my uh, voicemail on permanent vacation mode like there was no beep. And I just read my email address out three times in a polite way. But I reverted everything to email. Third of all, I stopped working at my desk. Um, I would work in the cafeteria or a meeting room. You know, it's just there's there's less chance someone's going to kind of come up and interrupt you if you need to do some deep work. 
Um, and, and you start doing that. You know, I deleted Facebook. I deleted LinkedIn, stuff like that. When, when you do that, you realize like, oh, I only have one access point. I can control it. I eliminate access and your productivity and your happiness goes up. You don't have to do a lot of switching costs. That's fantastic. That's really good advice. I mean, it's, I hear that and I, and I feel grateful, uh, because recently I was having this thing where I was trying to work on emails and I would just keep getting like emails and Facebook notifications and text messages. And because I work on an Apple, you can get all of those notifications all the time. Right. And I had this moment where I was wearing my Apple watch, my phone was beside me and my computer sitting there. And somebody called me and literally all three freaking devices rang. And I was like, okay, that's it. Like, that's enough. I can't deal with this anymore. And so I, st- I started turning off all the notifications. But what I did for for productivity, because I use uh, the mail app on, on Apple, I would open the mail app and I would shut off Wi-Fi completely so that I couldn't access I couldn't access anything. I couldn't access the internet. I couldn't get distracted by Facebook notifications. And then I would just start responding to all the emails that I had to respond to. And it cut down on the distractions. And I I could like, you know, bang out like 50 emails in an hour where normally that would take me on and off all day, right? Writing an email, checking Facebook, writing an email, getting a text message, all that kind of stuff. So I, I think that's some very, very sage advice. Um, I, mean, I, I sometimes find like I miss out on a one friend's travel photos or like I'm invited to like a private Facebook group that I can't join. But like the, the in exchange for those little bit lows, the highs I get from never checking it ever. Mm. Like it's just it's so out, outpaid, you know, so it's it makes it worth it, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah, absolutely. So I, I kind of want to shift gears and talk about perspective or mindset or, or whatever, whatever word you would like to use for this. Uh, and, and, and just before we dive into that, I want to read off a couple quotes that, that I pulled out from your book, because I think that these are really fantastic. Uh, so you are among the wealthiest people in the entire world. The average world income is $5,000. Are you higher than that? Then you're in the top 50%. So I think that's fantastic because it gives people perspective on wealth. The second one that I wanted to to dive into is um, I'm convinced that life is 10% what happens and 90% how we react to it. So let's let's talk about that. Let's let's dive into into the mindset and 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 why do you think that it's so important? Yeah, okay. So here's the mindset. The mindset is, you know, a secret number 3, the three words you can remember in your very worst days. We all have terrible days, myself included, but what you have to remember is this phrase. Remember the lottery. That's it. Remember the lottery and remember that you already won. What do I mean? Okay. There are 110 billion people who have ever lived, ever. They're called your grandparents and their grandparents and their grandparents. Like 110 billion people have ever lived. You're one of the 7 billion alive today. Okay. That's a 1 in 15 lottery that you already won. 14 out of every 15 people will never see another sunset, have a bowl of chocolate ice cream, or kiss their kids goodnight ever again. Of the 7 billion, you are, if you're listening to this, probably in the lucky kind of few hundred million uh, who, who has the, the time to listen to this. Why do you have the time to listen to this? Because you because you trust the water that comes out of your tap. You feel safe when you call walk out the front door. You can live where you like and, and likely marry who you please. Like the, You have a collective set of freedoms that, that's pretty rare around the world. And if you're listening to this, I, I would I would argue that you're pretty lucky already. Okay. You mentioned the income thing. Um, 
uh, I can add more to that. You know, if you're if you're above fifty thousand dollars, you're in the top zero point zero five percent. Like we we use this thing, the top one percent. We don't realize that kind of we're all in it. You know, uh, if, if you know, it's 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 actually a lot lower a threshold than you think. Um, and uh, if you happen to have a post secondary education of any kind, okay, um, you're in you're in only seven percent of the world that does. You know, 93% of the world does not. And I could, you know, we could keep going down this line. The point is, remember the lottery. You already have it pretty good. And so when, you know, someone doesn't go on a red light or you, you knock a glass of, you know, a vase of flowers over and it shatters or you're late picking up your kids for day, from daycare, it, we all have these things and, it, and it, we feel bad and, and something's going wrong and you feel the, the, the your amygdala like flash you some adrenaline like that you just don't need because it's not like a saber-toothed tiger is chasing you anymore. You, you just have that. Then just remember the lottery. Zoom out. Stop. Realize we are so lucky. We have it so good. We are living in the best time ever. And um, the fact that, listen, you're listening to this podcast for free. Someone, namely Connor uh, and team, uh, you know, are spending the time, the effort, the work to put it out there to, to, to kind of communicate to you. People are writing books and sharing messages with you. You are on the subway or at the gym or on, a, you know, it's 3 a.m. and you're driving your truck. Wherever you are right now, you're lucky. You're lucky to be alive. You're lucky to have this. We're lucky to have this conversation. And that little mantra that I just did is something I give to myself when every other day I have a bad moment or a stressful thing and I have to just give myself a little pep talk, but it is something that really helps me. And so that's why it's in the book. Fantastic. Fantastic. Thank you so much. And and so in terms of cultivating that that sort of mindset and perspective, when those things come up, it's just about reaffirming, I've already won the lottery. I've already won the lottery. Yeah, that that's part of it. And you said cultivating it. So let's go back to that quote. Um, you know, we have research now that shows 50% of our happiness is based on our genetic set point. Okay, so you, you walk in kind of with a, with a certain kind of uh, hand of cards, so to speak. Then 10% is your circumstances. So that, that, that quote really is true. 10% is what happens to you. And then 40% are your intentional activities. So, so the glass isn't half full or half empty. It's refillable. You know, you get to decide what your intentional activities are. And if you're like, yeah, yeah, that's nice. Pass reach up, but like what specifically are those intentional activities? That's where that 20 year old body of positive psychology work comes through. I've sifted through over 300 studies and I kind of give you the big five right now. Here, here they are. And, and all of these, by the way, are, are 20 minutes. Like think of them like a 20 minute vitamin. You don't have to do all five. You just have to pick one. So here are the five, a 20 minute brisk walk through nature. Okay. This is uh, American psychosomatic society research with Michael Babiak and team. Um, it outperforms antidepressants and the combo of doing both the antidepressants and the walking. Again, it's just a 20-minute brisk walk through, ideally through nature, like a forest is better than a mall. Number two is um, a 20-minute journaling practice. Uh, University of Texas researchers show that if you journal for 20 minutes uh, at the end of the day, you're happier. Like it, it, you can actually lower people's pain medication. You are more likely to stay in a relationship. Your mind has no GPS signal in it. So you relive the moment when you write about your husband buying you flowers or, you know, the email you got from a boss, whatever, you are there again. And it, it doubles or it triples if you read your journal, your positive experience. 
Funny, funny story, Connor, is that you know you walk in the front of the bookstore. There's all these journals, like empty pages with with twenty dollar price tags on the front, and I'm like, who would buy one of these? It's empty <laughs> pages. But then they asked me to do the Journal of Awesome a few years ago, and I was like, empty pages, sure. <laughs> um, and it's outsold most of my books. Like, like, like as an author, it's embarrassing. But like, my point is like the book I have with no words in it has outsold many of my books with words in it. That's fantastic. Well, I mean, a, people want to people want to put their own words down after well, after reading yours. Well, well, yeah, maybe after reading mine, maybe not. But the point is exactly journaling. It, what I'm now saying is like the twenty dollar investment you make in a journal is worth it because by by spending the money, you're more likely to do it, and we know how good it is for you. Okay, that's number two. Number three is conscious act of kindness. If you do five of those a week, you can increase your happiness more than almost anything else. Buying those flowers for your husband or wife, uh, sending that email if you are a boss and your direct report did something nice or something good, um, you know, holding the door open for someone on, on a bus or like it's just as simple as that. It makes you feel good. Number four is meditation. Uh, I won't get into this because it could be a whole other podcast, but suffice to say it increases um, the activity in your prefrontal cortex, part of your brain responsible for focus and attention, i.e. all your problems wash away. As I've heard it described, like you go from, you know, throwing grenades in the trenches of your life to zooming out and becoming the general. Like you, you zoom out and your problems dissolve. Uh, Leslie and I use Headspace, but 10% Happier or Calm.com are also great. Uh, and then finally, five gratitudes, writing down five gratitudes a week. And last time I said this, a woman put up her hand at a talk and she's like, you mean when I tell my grumpy husband and my three teenage boys at dinner every night to like do say a positive thing about their day it, it's it's what the study says and i said no the study says five gratitudes a week if you're actually doing five a night at the dinner table that's like a 700 percent increase on the minimum effective dose like my point is it's easy you know you only need five a week um and, and one simple game leslie and i do to make this come to life is we play a game before we turn out the lights every night called rose rose thorn bud where she says a rose from her day, I say a rose back, like a highlight of gratitude. Vice, we do it again, rose, rose. Thorn is something that did not go well, and a bud is something you're looking forward to. And that simple practice verbally before turning off the light uh, gets you four gratitudes. And as long as the thorn doesn't become like a 45-minute argument, you're good because you got a bud <laughs> You got a bud to look forward to for the next day. <laughs> That's a great way of looking at it. Yeah, oh, That does occasionally happen. You have to have an event. Oh yeah, you know, it's not about being Pollyanna. You have to have a like, you need compassion, empathy, and you gotta get stuff off your chest. That's a relationship, right? So we throw that thorn in there and make it make it real. Yeah, and I think this is like a, a fantastic point to make because so many people that start feeling this think that they need to avoid any sort of like negative emotions, and that when it comes up, that they're wrong. So what 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 would you say to that? What would you say to, say to the people that are you know maybe trying to like move down this path of of being happier? How is negativity going to show up in their life when they well, when they yeah. are feeling ideal? It definitely will always. Um, you know, our, our we have the most sophisticated and complex object in the universe inside our heads. It's called a brain. It weighs 3% of your body's mass and uses 30% of its energy. Um, it's programmed to survive. It looks for problems, scans for problems, finds problems, and, and solves problems. That's all it does. You know, That's a big part of what it does. It, it, you look for saber-toothed tigers, you throw a spear at it or run away. Right? For 70,000 years, we've been doing that. So when we get the blood test back from our doctor, we look for the high cholesterol. When we get the math test back from our teacher, we look for the question we got wrong. Um, your brain is always going to do that for the rest of your life. It's not about changing your brain. You can't. It's about understanding that 
and avoiding anxiety about anxiety or stress about stress or like, oh, I don't feel good. And I, I, I feel bad that I feel bad. Forget it. Just do three things. Recognize you're in a bad mood. Okay. Number one, that's, that's like, you know, the acceptance point. You have to do that first. Number two, recognize that it will end. Okay. Cause your last one did, you know, so it will end. And three, recognize that, um, those two things are okay and you'll feel good again. And that's, a, that's all you need. It's just like coast through those bad days. Uh, let them ride. Recognize that they're just a day. How human of you It is so normal. Um, you can, you can do self care which are the five things I just mentioned, you know, the, the, the brisk walk, the meditation, the, the, the journaling and so on. You can do those things, but, but don't rush it and don't judge yourself and, and, and be cool with not feeling cool. That's okay. That's totally cool. And, and in fact, it's normal. Like <laughs> you can't stop it anyway. Yeah. So don't try, you know? Yeah. I think noticing like when those, when those feelings come up, right. Cause I think for me, I started to notice at a certain period of time that, uh, right before I went to bed and right first thing in the morning were sort of like my most stressful times, um, depending on where I was at in my life. And I started to notice that when I woke up in the morning, all of like my tasks and to-do lists and, you know, the bills that I had to pay and all those things, like I would, I would start to wake up and all of them would just start to like download into my consciousness. And it was just like, Oh my gosh, I can't deal with all of this. And so I started the practice of, um, thinking of three things that I was grateful for before I even put my feet on the floor. And that has made such a fundamental difference because, you know, when I first come to in the morning, all that, all that shit will just start to download, right? All the lists and, and the, the to do's and the emails that I have to send and the conversations that I have to have and the people that I forgot to text back and like all of that stuff will just start to like right into, right into my consciousness. And by just sort of like recognizing that, just like you said, and, and then going back into, well, what am I actually grateful for? Like that, all that stuff's going to be there and that stuff's going to be there anyways. But what am I actually really grateful for right now? First thing, right first thing in the morning before I even let my feet hit the floor. And it has been such a transformational practice. So for anyone that, that is out there, if you have that uh, little bit of, of anxiety or kick in the morning, that might be a good practice to start. I love uh, it. I, I think that's a fantastic thing to do. And I, I'll just throw in and try to smile while doing it. As yes. weird as that sounds, uh, the, the sort of reverse smile can, can also help. A hundred percent. So Neil, we're going to, we're going to start wrapping up here. I have some, uh, rapid fire questions for you. Uh, and, and then we'll, we'll be done. So are you all ready? Yeah. All right. Neil. So, um, who is the most authentically happy person you have ever met? Maybe tell us like a little story about that. Definitely my dad. Uh, immigrant Canada, like couldn't believe that you could buy a banana from Ecuador in the grocery store, like, <laughs> like, and, and still retains that awe to this day after being in this country for 50 years. So like, he's just like, I can't believe a car can get from here to the, and this road connects to that road. Like that's how he talks. So this is beautiful. The, the underlying sense of wonder in the books of awesome are from his immigrant worldview, which I like was lucky enough to hear as a child, not realizing that most people's parents don't talk that way. That's wonderful. Uh, what's the one experience that you recommend to anyone? One experience? Yep. Uh, G rated. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> uh, okay. I, uh, um, you know, let me think here. Skinny dipping off a dock. Mm, that's a good like, one. Like uh, freezing cold water. Yep. yep. You know, into a lake. It's just, you feel alive. That's good. 
Uh, in your opinion, what is the most underrated trait or character for modern day success? Ah, so many to think about. Um, listening. Mm. Listening. That's a really good one. Uh, what's the one book that you would take with you if you were stranded on a desert island? On the Shortness of Life by Seneca. Oh, that's, yeah, that's a really good one. Uh, what's the one movie that you'd take? Um, probably being John Malkovich or Annie Hall. Nice. <laughs> that's a quirky one, but it's really good. Uh, yeah. Your single biggest lesson from Harvard. <laughs> putting you, I'm putting you on the spot. Yeah, I know. <laughs> no, no, I love, I love, I love it. Um, and I think the pause is good. The pause means I'm thinking about it. I, I think the single biggest lesson I learned at Harvard are, um, you, you can't judge a book by its cover. So it, you know, Harvard people, you know, myself included, walk in with all kinds of weird expectations. Like, these are going to be trust fund babies with silver spoons in their mouth, you know, the sons of kings and, and like, you know, how elitist they're going to be and all these corporate bankers want to the blood sex society. It's like, you can't, and then even when you get there, you're like, oh, this guy's this person. I've heard of this cliche before. And then even when you get past that, it's like, oh, this guy's, pr no, you, you just can't judge it before it's covered. Like, everyone is just a beautiful, you know, person their own way it, it takes time to learn who they are um you know get, give people the honor of of the of your time as opposed to presupposing that you know what they're like even if they're baked in with a ton of stereotypes or cliches like the wall street goldman sachs banker at harvard business school that might not actually be what you think they are mm. you know that's really good that's a really good takeaway uh and the the final one is who do you think has been the most influential person of all time with regards to happiness and why? I like how these are really easy. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> yeah, the, the rapid fire takes, a, you know, it uh, takes. A <laughs> I mean, I, I, I'd, I'd probably say Oprah just because her scope is so wide. Her impact is so deep. She did her, her show for so long. And even now that she's not doing the Oprah Winfrey show, you know, she's now brought into a network, which I can't go a day or two without someone saying, I heard about this author because of Super Soul Sunday. Or do you remember that book that Oprah picked a while ago, you know, Power of Now? I, well, I read that, long, you know, like, again, it's like what a ripple effect, right? Like to, to go from and, and, you know, a, a very, very dark and troubled childhood um, being abused. And, the, you know, the story of her life is just astounding. And then to go to really affecting people's happiness on a daily basis in such a broad and deep way. That's fantastic. All right, my friend. Well, Neil, thank you so much for being on our podcast. Um, this has been an absolute treat. I've learned a lot and I'm sure and I know that pretty much every single person that's out there that's listening to this and is going to listen to this uh, is going to take away a ton. So thank you for being here. My, my absolute pleasure. You guys have a great, great show. I'm a big fan and, and congrats on, on all this, uh, all this, all this fun work and my, my pleasure to be part of it. Thank you. So listeners, definitely, uh, man talks tribe, definitely go check out the happiness equation. Want nothing plus do anything equals having more. And for more podcasts, go to mantalks.com. Uh, check out some of the blogs and some of the videos that we're starting to post from events, uh, which are going live. Don't forget to su subscribe on iTunes and never miss an episode. Leave us a rating as well because it really helps 
to uh, it really helps with the rankings. So please definitely give us a shout out if you love this episode. If you want to hear more, let us know who you want to hear. Uh, and don't forget that we are now live. Man Talks is now live in Toronto and Los Angeles. Uh, we will be in LA on July 18th. That event is going live soon, and we will be in Toronto on August 22nd. Uh, so stay tuned for that. Thank you so much for listening to the Man Talks podcast. Catch us next week for another inspiring conversation with another inspiring man. Yeah.